we know how to end extreme poverty. It's well within our means to do so globally and have plenty of left plenty left over for other big issues like climate change. We should just do it. If you've ever been surprised by your own thoughts, well, you're not alone. From the time we're born to the time we die, we spend our lives meeting strangers, including the one within. We also spend our lives learning about many of those strangers and turning them into colleagues, friends, and family. In this podcast, host Charlie Bressler talks with fascinating people on their musings about family, community, work, helping others, and getting to know the stranger inside ourselves. Where do we fit in the world we all inhabit together? Charlie Bressler, the co-founder of The Life You Can Save and former president of a large international retail company, investigates ideas that he has been musing on since he obtained his PhD in clinical and social psychology way back in 1984. Welcome again to Musings About Ourselves and Other Strangers. Today I am musing with Michael Fay, who is the co-founder of Give Directly, Segovia, and Tap Tap Send, where he is the CEO. All of these organizations have in common a focus on making it as easy as possible to move capital to the emerging markets. Give Directly, a U.S.-based nonprofit, has been recognized by Fast Company as one of the top 10 most innovative companies in finance four times and has been said to be sending shockwaves through the charity sector by The Guardian. Michael obtained a Ph.D. in business economics from Harvard University. Michael was named one of Foreign Policy's 100 Leading Global Thinkers. He is a member of the World Economic Forum's Community of Young Global Leaders and a term member of the Council of Foreign Relations. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. I should tell the audience that Michael and I have known each other now for quite a while. And despite our age difference and geographical distance, uh, we've become quite good friends over the years. So I would like everyone to know that ahead of time. I want to start by talking to Michael about Give Directly, uh, the charity that he founded, um, which is doing remarkable things, in my opinion, and which is supported by the life you can save. And then I want to get into more abstract moral thinking, just to hear Michael's thoughts about it. Um, as a non-moral philosopher, and as people who are listening to the podcast know, I'm asking these questions or a lot of these questions to everyone who's being interviewed. So, Michael, I really want to start with this question I've been dying to ask you. When you were five years old, did you wake up and have an epiphany and say to yourself, I want to find a way to move as much money as I possibly can to emerging markets? Or did it come about some other way? It definitely wasn't five years old, and it definitely wasn't an epiphany either. Uh, I, th I think so many founding narratives are based around this moment of realization. And the reality of Give Directly was there are many conversations uh, with Paul, Rohit, and Jeremy, who are the co-founders of Give Directly pretty early on. Uh, we were in grad school, so I was doing a PhD in economics, and it was an important time for the field. It was the time when we started to evaluate with randomized controlled trials, which are essentially the gold standard of evaluation, uh, what worked and didn't work. What were the years? Can you just give the audience an idea of what the years were? Uh, you're testing my memory. Within a decade, uh, within a decade Michael, within a decade. 
I was in graduate school, I think, 2004 to 2009. And the Nobel Prize came out of the work of Michael Kramer, Abhijit Banner, and Esther Duflo, who really introduced randomized evaluations to development. Right? These are A-B tests. It's what were used in medicine to test whether a drug works or not. It's what tech uses uh, to test emails and other things and really hadn't been introduced to the field of poverty reduction until that period. To save the five years of graduate school, the punchline was a lot of the things that we had hoped would work were not working as well as you would have hoped. And this very basic idea of giving people money actually reduced poverty. Can you give people the idea of what GiveDirectly does, what's been accomplished from your point of view, and what your hopes for it? are now as a board member moving away from the day-to-day operations because you've turned that over to Rory now? Yes. So we're very literal people. Give Directly does exactly what it sounds like. We let donors give directly to recipients, sending their money to a recipient's phone that the recipient can then take out as cash and spend as they will. Uh, We really view ourselves as the pipes. So we will help you deliver that money as efficiently and quickly and directly as possible. But it is donor to recipient and that direct connection. So we've been around since 2009, so about 13 years, raised about a billion dollars in that time thus far. And now the hope for us is to actually end extreme poverty or accelerate the end of extreme poverty. And we're hoping to start Uh, by looking at regions and eventually an entire country and ask, can you take every person above the poverty line in that country? What has happened with your research finding? Is there anything, A, that you found that would be interesting using these RCTs and anything that surprised you in your research findings or anything that would surprise the just average person on the street? So we've been doing these evaluations since the beginning. We actually started give directly with an evaluation because even though there was evidence that cash worked effectively, we wanted to make sure that give directly designed and delivered cash was also working effectively. So that was way back when 2009 or so with that evaluation. Uh, we've done lots of evaluations since then, not just on the question of whether cash works, but on how best to design cash programs what the impact is of cash, not only on those that receive, but on the macro economy and those that don't receive, so neighbors. Uh, We've looked at the effectiveness of cash directly against other interventions. So we've been calling these the benchmarking studies. So if you're going to spend $1,000 on a cash program for someone or $1,000 on a training program, what are the effects of each? Um, and so on and so forth. I'm happy to go through the results. In terms of the surprise, I think one of the biggest projects was this macroeconomic project that looked at the impact, not just on the person that received, but on the macro economy and their neighbors. Uh, And one of the punchlines of that was that those that didn't receive benefited almost as much as those that did receive. The authors calculated a social multiplier, essentially how much benefit accumulates to the community beyond the individual benefit of about 2.6, which I think was pretty remarkable. What process do you think 
is in place that allows for the donors to benefit the macro environment. I mean, not the donors, but the people who receive the money to benefit the macro environment. What's your hypothesis about yeah, how yeah. that works? Yeah, this is testing my uh, econ memory. Uh, essentially, when you um, no, no, I, I know this one. Uh, essentially, when you when you drop money on a place, you could imagine it goes into prices, so inflation, or you could imagine that it goes into the delivery of more stuff or productivity for the same labor provided. And that's just an empirical question. You can write down models that predict either. Uh, what we have seen is that the money translates to the productivity gains and not to inflation. Uh, you see very small amounts of inflation, 0.1% in the projects we've run. Now, to help think about the productivity gain, I always use the, uh, the barber example. So imagine you're a barber and you've got to show up every day to work at 9 a.m. and you close your shop at 5 p.m. Now, if there's only one person that wants a haircut or can afford a haircut, you're going to do one haircut for eight hours work because you have to be there. You've got to be there to open the shop and sit there all day. But now if a bunch of other people have money or want haircuts, you're going to do five haircuts in that same period. So it's the exact same amount of time that you've worked. You've done five times as much productive productive work. Uh, and that's really the channel that you see. I assume that most people didn't use the money to get a haircut, but I think it's a great example yeah. for people to understand. But can you just tell us how people generally do use the money versus yeah, what people might have expected in terms of how people use the money? Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, the Pashto mill is the other classic example, but I think that one resonates a little bit less well. So people use it. I mean, what we know from the literature is uh, people use it well. So that's important to say the things that you might fear, people using it for drugs, alcohol, do not manifest in the data. Uh, if anything, there's suggestive evidence that it goes the other way, that people reduce the consumption of those temptation goods. Uh, people also do not stop working or become lazy. I, again, uh, the evidence suggests the other direction. Uh, and then what they use it for really depends on individual needs. Uh, you'll have three neighbors that at a superficial level seem to be living very similar lives. They each have two kids, live in the same village, using the money for dramatically different things. So what are the cases? Some people may use it to feed their family. A lot of these households are skipping meals, especially for the children. So basic consumption uh, is one place. Uh, investment in businesses. Uh, so we just had a, a community in Malawi. They actually invested it in um, a station to treat cows for disease. Uh, and they all pulled their money to build that. Uh, a lot of people invest in their houses, uh, which has always been one of my favorites because there's a very natural reaction of why would you rebuild your house? Is that just um, conspicuous consumption or something like that? Which is a very natural Western reaction. Why would you redo your house? And recipients will very rationally tell you, if I build my house out of straw, it's going to basically collapse or burn every year or so. So I'm going to have to replace it. So the return on the investment of building a metal cement house is quite high. So it's a great investment. Two, we can collect clean water from the roof. So I can save hours a day of going to fetch water. Three, there are going to be less bugs flying around my house because you don't get those kind of accumulations of water in the roof that tend to attract bugs. And then the fourth thing, which isn't going to be measured in any economic index, is they'll say, have you ever watched your child be rained on every night? 
as they sleep on the floor. Like, do you know the pain of not being able to provide a roof or a bed for your child? Uh, and I don't know that pain, but it's unimaginable. And when they share that, it's one of the most powerful things uh, that they want, which speaks to the dignity of cash uh, and the choice it provides them. How does the work you're doing um, with Give Directly fit into the goal of universal basic income? And I also would like to hear what you describe what universal basic income is and how you feel about it. Yeah, so universal basic income is a very specific form of cash program. So the three components, universality, so you give to everybody, as opposed to a traditional program where you target. So you may target the poorest people, you may target women, you may target something else, but it's targeted. Universal is for everyone. Basic, so it's a small amount of money allowing you to meet your basic needs. And that's in contrast with, say, a lump sum that's meant for investment, a large amount of money that you can invest. And then it's an income. So it's a steady stream of payments over a long period of time. Uh, and in its purest sense forever, as opposed to a one-time payment that you may receive. People often treat cash as a monolith. It's, it's one thing. Uh, and cash is anything but one thing. There are many, many ways you can design a cash program. There are differences in how people operationalize a cash program in efficiency, respect, and so forth. So really, we, we can't talk about cash. We have to talk about specific designs and specific implementations of cash. Universal basic income is a specific design of cash. In the media, uh, it has often gotten used interchangeably with cash. And that's it is what it is, um, but it is not the same. And many of the things that will be talked about as universal basic income are really just cash transfer programs. Give Directly is running what I think is the closest to a pure universal basic income that we've seen in Kenya, where we are giving everybody uh, in the region that we're working money to meet their basic needs. So it's about $22 a month over 12 years, which will be the longest period uh, of a UBI program that's been run. So they can count on getting this money for the next 12 years, and they can plan on getting this money on a monthly basis for 12 years, which is very different than a direct cash transfer. Correct. How do you feel about the universal well, basic I, income? In it's not different. It's a form of direct cash transfer. Yeah. Right? Like we've run programs where we've given people money monthly for two years. So it's just shorter than the 12 years. Mm -hmm. We've run programs where we've given people money twice, a large amount of money each time. Uh, so it's a form of cash transfer. I wouldn't say it's different. How do you feel about universal basic income? Do you think it should grow? Should it be in industrialized countries, not just in sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia? Uh, I think I'm going to give you a frustratingly nuanced answer. Okay. Uh, I think you need because to you think can't about, give a different answer, or you don't want to. Because I think you need to approach it with nuance to get to the right answer. Okay. I, I don't think there's a single answer of good bad. One, you need to think about. UBI in two different ways. One is as an intervention and one is as a policy. As an intervention, what, what I mean by that is if I run this program in Kenya, what's the impact of the universal basic income and was it worth the dollars we spent on it? In that, I am confident that the answer is yes. Giving people money is a highly effective intervention. 
uh, and we should be doing more of it. That is separate than the very complicated policy questions that surround UBI in the following sense. Where will UBI be funded? So if the plan was to scrap all programs for the poorest people in the country and use that to fund a basic income for everybody, including the wealthy, that probably doesn't make sense, right? So if the extreme poor lose everything and people like me and you start getting a basic income, that's probably net negative, right? So you, you can't have that conversation without talking about what the funding sources are, like how is this going to be funded and what the funding sources are and what's going to be replaced. So is this intended in addition to current programs or, or replacing current programs? And that's a conversation that has to be tackled at a country by country level. And it's going to be very different, right? So if you look at what it would cost to run a UBI in a place like the US versus a place like Scandinavia versus a place like India, it's going to be a very different fraction of current social spend and a very different fraction of current GDP that it would cost. Uh, so in some countries, you need a real restructuring of where you're getting the funds from. Uh, and in other cases, it's probably more plausible to do uh, in the immediate future. Are there so places that right. listeners could go to hear this nuanced debate among people that are respectable. I mean, is this is this something that's going on where people could go to a YouTube channel or a podcast? I mean, because it seems interesting, but I agree with you. It seems incredibly contextual, meaning it's different in the United States versus Norway versus India. Is there a place this dialogue is going on that you know? I tell you, you, you know, you know how little time I spend on social media. Generally. I don't know in those places. I think there will be papers at the various centers, um, and, I, and I can follow up so that we can share this with folks. But I, but I think it's sort of paper by paper. I'm not okay. sure if there's one YouTube right. channel or where to go. I won't push it, Michael. I won't get into so. Oh, I don't, I don't know. I wish. But I will say that there is somebody who knows even less about social media than you do, and that's me. And so uh, I know. But I can say I'm 73 years old, and therefore, I, why should I know anything about social media? I thought the way you market is you put a television ad on television and say, I guarantee it, and everything falls into place. But yeah, um, it's, uh, it doesn't uh, work that way so much now. Um, everybody's trying to win the lottery, it seems like, with some sort of social media um, viral program. And uh, yeah. it seems different. Um, anyway. <laughs> Maybe this will be our viral moment, Shirley. What's that? Maybe this will be our viral moment. Let me ask you a, a different question where I'm asking you for an opinion. Where do you think the fight against extreme poverty fits into the major issues that are facing the world today? And you don't necessarily need to prioritize them. I just wanted you to say kind of what you think they are. And then if you do have some priorities, kind of how one would prioritize that. I have a very simple view on this. We know how to end extreme poverty. It's well within our means to do so globally and have plenty of left, plenty left over for other big issues like climate change. We should just do it. There are plenty of problems we don't know how to solve yet, uh, and we should work on solving them. But for the ones that we can solve and we have the money to solve, we should just do it. And I think we should not spend too much time debating things like what is the absolute best intervention. You think about deworming versus malaria. They're both highly effective interventions. The amount it would cost to kind of treat them at scale is well within the global means to do it. We should just do it. 
Well, you know, I agree with you. And uh, it's part of why I asked the question, I have to say. Are there people or other organizations that you particularly respect? And if so, why? I mean, you know, you could just name a few. It doesn't have to be an exhaustive list. But are there people or other organizations? Yes, of course. And I'm, I'm not close to any specific organization where I could comment on operational quality or whatnot. But using folks like the life you can save, give well, like I, I trust those folks immensely. Those organizations on the list are great orgs and we should be funding them in full. Like that funding gap that GiveWell publishes should be zero. We should fill that gap and it would not take that much money globally to do. I just, I, I, mean, I, I can put it in context, Charlie. I, I haven't looked at the GiveWell numbers uh, lately, but I think it was like a few hundred million was the funding shortfall. And we're talking about a sector where global aid is 160 billion. I think U.S. philanthropic giving is a few hundred billion on top of that. We're talking about hundreds of billions. Billion in the US. Yes, we're talking about hundreds of billions plus global aid, plus other countries, plus national social spend, like high hundreds of billions. And we're talking about highly effective interventions that are missing 300 million. It's just such a drop in the bucket. We should do it. I remember being incredibly ill years ago. My temperature was 40 degrees, that's 104 for those who may need a Fahrenheit conversion. I was so heavily congested that when I coughed, I would struggle to catch my breath. My bank account was in the negative, so there was no money for doctors or medication. I had no gas left in my car, and all I had left to eat was yogurt. The fear and helplessness that I felt in that moment was very real. I'm incredibly grateful to say that situations like this are no longer a reality for me. But there are millions of people living in situations that are far worse than the experience I just described. Hi, my name is Stacey Black. I'm the Deputy Director at an organization called The Life You Can Save. We provide donors with a vetted list of charities that are proven to be highly effective in helping people living in extreme poverty. To view a list of these charities, to receive a free book, or assistance in making a donation, please visit thelifeyoucansave.org slash musings. So I don't think most people know anything about effective altruism or know anything about Peter Singer or GiveWell. I think most people just hear the term altruism and they immediately think, oh, that's not me. I haven't given up yet on the word altruism. I come across a lot of altruistic people and some exceptionally humble ones, people that don't want their names on gifts, people willing to trust someone living thousands of miles away to do whatever they want with the money. So Maybe I'll start surveying a broader range of people, but I personally haven't given up yet on altruism. Well, I think if even give directly is going to reach its reasonable goals of ending or really accelerating the end of world poverty, they're going to have to reach new markets. I mean, there's the governments, of course, but new markets in this philanthropic community and even in the United States of 300 billion people that even give directly as successful you are aren't reaching. And my own opinion is you would, you're going to have to do it outside the concept of altruism. And it's going to have to be something like what Mike Shore said, I think was really interesting. When you return your shopping cart, you get this feeling like, huh, I really feel good. I return my shopping cart. And when you don't do it, you get this feeling not so good. We're trying to tap into that feeling of, wow, that's a good thing to do. I gave effectively. I did some yeah. research, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I don't think anyone's saying you shouldn't feel good from doing good. Of course, people feel good from doing good. Uh, and 
what that exact feeling is, is going to differ person by person. Uh, and I don't think we should judge it. I think if someone's giving that act itself, almost definitionally, is a good thing. But to the point on give directly growth, I think what I've seen, people are frustrated with the sector. People want to know where their money is going. They want to know that, that you, the organization, are going to do something different with it than would have happened without the money. They want to know it's making a difference. They want to know that you're efficient and take that seriously. And they want to know that you're honest. And, and it's something that I think give directly we, we've done pretty well on. Uh, we're still pushing it, but we should be able to tell you exactly what person got your money. So if you send $1,000, who got it? How much of it did they get? What date did they get it? What did they say about what they're going to use it for? Uh, so on and so forth. And that's something that very few people, uh, if any, can do right now, because you need to build up the operational systems, the financial systems. You sort of need to design the organization around that from the beginning. I don't think there's any doubt about the scaling potential of Give Directly compared to other nonprofits that I know, and also the de democratic nature and decentralized yeah, exactly. nature of Give Directly, which is also empowering and really different. I do want to go back and ask a tech, uh, just a logistical question because I've always been confused by it. And when I talk to people about Give Directly, they're confused about it. How do people in these countries that are so poor get cell phones where they can receive this money or do they already have them? So we allow people to buy feature phone with the money provided. So instead of getting $500, you would get $488 and get the phone if you would like. If you would not like, we simply give you a SIM card, which is free. And you can think of that SIM card as the world's smallest ATM card because they can take that and go to the local shop and essentially withdraw the money that's on the card. One more thing before we get into moral development and moral thinking, which I'm sure you don't want to talk about, but I really want you to. Um, how do you compare cash transfer, in, in essence, to the Nobel Prize winning idea of microloans, uh, which a lot of people have heard about, and cash transfers maybe less so? There's only one difference between the two, to oversimplify. With a loan, you give the money. And then you ask for it back a few months later. With cash, you give the money and then you don't ask for it back a few months later. So that, that is the difference between microfinance is, is there any cash. direct comparisons that have made one look better than the other or are those yes. direct comparisons not taken? Yes. So microfinance grew very rapidly. And then the evidence came. In the case of cash, the evidence came and then it grew rapidly. And I'll walk you through each. So with microfinance, the evidence was weak. Uh, a lot of the papers found no impact on the social outcomes that you would like to see. Cash was the opposite. Cash, you found an impact across a wide range of outcomes. Uh, so why did microfinance grow? I, I think there are two cautions in the microfinance tale. One is that it's very emotionally appealing. We all want something for nothing. So the idea that I can basically give you money, Charlie, and you give it back to me next month, and I've completely transformed your life by not spending any money, uh, is very emotionally alluring. Giving a stranger money and not knowing what happens to that person exactly is the opposite of emotionally alluring. So I think microfinance had that emotional allure. Uh, it felt like the golden bullet or the silver bullet. Uh, so it was one of the factors. And the second was that microfinance was a business. A lot of the microfinance organizations were for-profit institutions with shareholders. 
that did quite well. Uh, so there's a lot of investment into microfinance. I think the combination grew that movement very quickly. And then the evidence came and it was unfortunately not strong. Uh, with cash, I think cash is the opposite. Cash has lots of evidence, but is very hard, right? It requires people to sacrifice control. So you don't control what the person does. Uh, you don't get the money back. It's not cute. Cash is not a goat or a little chicken. So cash is uh, very hard and cold to people. So there are a lot of reasons why cash does not have that same appeal that microfinance did. But what cash does have going for it is the empowerment and the evidence. It's been great to hear about Give Directly, some of which I knew, some of which I didn't know. But hopefully people listening today, lots of them, if we're reaching a new audience, didn't know. And hopefully they'll be very interested in what Give Directly is doing. And we'll look into it much more as a result of listening. There's a group that are contemplating doing something different and open to yeah. doing something different because they want to be more effective and you can help them become more effective. And I think that's the only way we're going to unlock the philanthropy switch for highly effective nonprofits like GiveDirectly. So I agree wholeheartedly. And this is a topic that we've talked about. I think spending our time debating what the single best thing is or the second best thing and trying to change the mind of one of those people is not going to do a whole lot. We're just going to rearrange the decks, the chairs on the deck, right? So if you were giving to the best thing and I was giving to the second best and then we switch, the world is no different than it was before. Uh, so what we should all be focusing on is finding the folks giving to less effective things and getting them to give to more effective and then getting everybody to give a bit more. I, I agree with you way more effective. But I think until you get at the fact that they feel like giving is a private matter and no one, as somebody once said to me, who are you to tell me how I should give my money? I wasn't telling them they should give to give directly yeah. or against Malaria Foundation. I was suggesting that there's more effective charities than the donkey sanctuary or even a food bank in their local neighborhood. Not that they have to not give to the food bank, but I wanted yeah. to point out that some charities are a thousand times more. As long as people believe that their behavior is a private matter and their choices are yeah. as good as anybody else's, I think that's a problem. Again, I frame it, what's the most effective way to get people to give more effectively? I think the guilt and the judgment approach doesn't work. At least it did not work for me. I agree. What works I, is- It's opportunity. Opportunity, opportunity. That's right. feel good. opportunity to live a flourishing life. But That's you have to be able to talk to those people. And so anyway, let me just ask you one more question and then we can uh, quit for now. Although I'm sure there'll be lots of conversations which you and I will have that won't be for this podcast interview. But I wanted to ask you to end, and you may not want to answer this. What do you think it means to live a moral life? I think at a baseline, we should all contribute more good. Uh, than we take in the world. And I think those are very hard things to measure. Um, but as, as, as a minimum standard for all of us to hold ourselves to, we should try to contribute more to the global team, the global population uh, than we take from it. Well, Michael, thank you very much. And uh, I appreciate your taking the time uh, to talk about Give Directly and to uh, address these 
what I think are important questions uh, about morality, which I think we don't necessarily agree on, even whether they're important questions. I think you and I agree on the practical side of it, which is clearly more important. But thank you very much. Well, uh, I don't think they're not important questions. I think they are important in the sense that they change actions. Well, I'll go back to that Karl Marx quote, at the risk of alienating people who are libertarians or don't like Karl Marx. uh, I think philosophers have only interpreted the world. The point, however, is to change it. And Peter Singer loves that quote. I quoted it at a meeting with him and he smiled. And I think Peter Singer is a really good example of a philosopher who's living that. And uh, I hope that people will not only go to the Give Directly website, but also check out thelifeyoucansave.org, which is a charity that I co-founded with Peter Singer. Thanks very much, Michael. Thanks, Charlie. Thank you for listening to this episode of Musings About Ourselves and Other Strangers. Subscribe and join us. Our guests have varied experiences, different points of view, and interesting ideas about what it means to live a well-balanced moral life. We hope you'll share this podcast with those close to you. We'd also like to invite you to rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you use. And if you're interested in learning more about the life you can save and the charities we benefit, visit thelifeyoucansave.org slash musings.